Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Story Club podcast. First things first, we missed an episode last week due to technical issues. If you're listening to this down the line, that is totally irrelevant. But if you were wondering where last week's episode was, technical issues, always the case. But with that, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network. Now, titles are never the reason I bring people onto the podcast. It's always their story and their history. But as always, what I love and go into detail here in the episode is Maria's life, lessons and experiences. I mean, it's been one hell of a journey for her from being born in Chile, just as the Pinochet regime kicked off. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Starting her first job at 14, bouncing around America, back to Chile after her world was upended and making the call to go back for her family traveling to Germany, traveling to London, moving to America. Maria has been all over the place and she's picked up so many interesting insights and she's had one hell of a career. Of course, working at 200% for your entire life, it does play catch up. And we touch on how that's impacted Maria and made her decisions about how she carries herself in life now and what she prioritizes. And if you enjoy this episode and you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please do leave a review, rate the episode. It means a lot. I get to see the feedback. And with that out of the way, we're going to jump right on in. Maria, firstly, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've made the journey from Kent to come yes, up for I a did. full day of creating content, stuff for yourself. Shooting, doing content. It's so weird, you know, to I, I come from a generation of sort of people that cringe when you are put in front of the spotlight for your self-promotion, especially as a woman, you know? Yeah. How have you found it? How long have you been doing it for? Uh, quite a, well, I don't know. I've been doing the podcast probably about four or five years. So, uh, but it's still, you know, those moments where you think, am I really having someone pointing a camera at me and taking a picture? But, you know, you get used to it. Yeah, it's funny. And you kind of beat everyone to the curve because podcasts are all over the place. Now that's ironic. I'm saying that whilst we're, yeah. you're doing mine. <laughs> yeah. So I, I said to you before we even start the cameras rolling, you're probably, of all the guests I've had, the hardest because there's just so much I want to get through with you you've had such a journey your knowledge your experience there's so much to cover but I guess to keep things simple the reason it's called the story club is because a large part of this is about your story Mm -hmm. so I'd really love to go back to like your journey in life started in Latin America didn't it yes it did I was actually born in Chile right at the start of the dictatorship the famous Pinochet dictatorship so uh, a country that was, uh, I don't know if you know much about Chile. It's a lovely country, very long, very beautiful country. Um, but it was, you know, plagued with quite a lot of problems during 1973, which is when I was born. Mm. And uh, to be born into a tumultuous situation that upended the economy, it upended my parents' lives. My dad was in the aviation industry. Um, and so that changed everything, you know, it changed everything for my whole family. So with a lot of people, a lot of people also uh, left during that time. So I was there. And then after a couple of years of my dad trying to make things work, he got a job in Miami. And so we left when I was about maybe two and a half, three years old uh, to Miami. And I was brought up in the States. So I did all my schooling in the States with a couple of, you know, traveling here and there. As I said, my dad was in the aviation industry. Mm -hmm. So I lived in uh, Florida and California, in um, Madrid, in Argentina, different places. 
So how was that for you, having to jump around, change your life a lot? So you adapted quite fast. Well, you know what? I think, um, I don't know, you know, I don't know the story whether or not people are born a certain way or they're made a certain way by the uh, situations in their lives. I believe it's a bit of both. Um, I, I guess all of those things prepared me for the life I have today. So it wasn't unusual for me to arrive to a new school and the teacher saying, oh, we have a new student today, Maria Villablanca. And I'd be like, yep, I got this. Stand in front of the class. Hi, I'm Maria Villablanca. Let me tell you my story. And so I've been doing that for a long time. So I think it kind of prepared me for what I do today. So you, it just came quite naturally, I guess, because, you know, the sometimes kids can be quite cruel and when yeah. you're the new kid, but you just threw yourself in and that uh, worked? Threw myself in and uh, I, I've i always been the kind of person, even when I was little, that liked to stand up for the little guy. So it wasn't, even though being a girl, I was someone that would stand up to the class bully and just be like, oh yeah, why don't you pick on someone your own size? Because I was a tall kid and I was a basketball player, I was an athlete, so I was quite strong and opinionated and uh, and so it was not uncommon for me to not have any fear to some degree of, well, much, really. Was it quite hard to build relationships with people if you knew you were always going to be moving around? Uh, yeah, but you know what? I thought of it as an adventure. I had loads of friends, loads of, you know, and then it was like, oh, we're moving to Buenos Aires. Amazing. Let's do it. I was like, yeah, I'm ready for the next adventure. And then I'd come in and make new friends. And I still am friends with people I've had since, you know, since uh, childhood. I've got one of my closest friends I had since I was three years old, you know. So actually, I would say it made me have more relationships with people and longer term. And I would have pen pals. And yeah, it was great. Nice. That's interesting. I suppose it could go either way, right? It's either someone finds it hard to create bonds or if they've got it naturally, like you said, it just gave you an opportunity to make more close friends and more close friends and more close friends. I think it's 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 like a lesson in life, right? If you look at things with, from a specter of this is a negative, then the whole thing will be negative. I tried to find the opportunities in things. And so for me, the opportunity was the next adventure, newer friends. Yes, of course, any kid, especially as I got older, I didn't want to leave, you know, especially by the time I was a teenager, I had a boyfriend. I was like, no, I don't want to leave. Yeah, okay. Uh, So I think when I got to about 16, 17, my parents, we were more static. So I stayed in the same place because, yeah, I probably would have thrown my toys out and said, I don't want to move now. But as a kid, it was great. It was an adventure. Yeah, that's true, actually. It's when it gets to those teenage years yeah. that life becomes a bit more real Correct. and you want to feel that security and yeah. being more established. So then 16, 17 would have been in America the last yeah. years of school before going off to uni? Yep, exactly. Well, college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was there. I was in basketball, track and field. Um, I was I was one of those kids that did everything. So I was in the debate club. I was in student government. I was in the law club. I was in... Uh, everything, everything you can think of. I love to participate. I love to get involved in stuff. I was like a full-time student in the sense that I was at school at 7 a.m. and I didn't leave till 9 p.m. sometimes because I was either playing a game or I was mentoring and teaching, uh, tutoring other students or I was in whatever club that I was in. I just, I love to be involved. So with all these interests and passions, how easy was it for you to start choosing where you were going to start directing things? Because you like trying a lot of different things, but then when you've got to go to college, you've got to choose, I can't remember, is it a minor, major type thing? or Not in the States. It's interesting in the States. You go into the United States, yeah, you say that you want to, what major you're in, but you can change a million times over. So, which I find fascinating here in the UK, you have, like, 
there's no way I would have known at age 17 or 18 what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. For sure, yeah. So um, I think I went into college, to uni, with an economics degree or wanting to do economics. I ended up, you know, studying astrophysics and uh, I've got a minor or I was getting on track to get a minor in astronomy and study history and business. And I mean, I just wanted, I was, I guess I've always had a voracious appetite for learning for knowing more. I even took a class in architectural history. I mean, I, just you name it. I was interested in taking as many classes as possible. So when you finished, what was I it? Didn't, you... I didn't finish. I was on my way to finishing. So here's the, the other part. I think you asked a question about there's so much to talk about, right? If I were to define myself, I would say I am a non-traditionalist person. I'm pretty traditional. I'm pretty conservative, believe it or not. But I am... Uh, in the sense that I'm, I quite play it safe, right? Not politically, I meant. <laughs> and uh, but I am someone that has had a tr non-traditional path, right? So I was on track to go to, to finish uni. I was going to finish with a business degree and a minor in astronomy, uh, of all things. <laughs> and um, and then tragedy struck. My dad's all a bunch a bunch of things happened at once. My dad's business went bankrupt. My mom ha was recovering from cancer. Their marriage failed. Um, there was no money. There was, uh, you know, it was, everything was expensive to support me hmm. and my sister and my brother. And so as the Where old- Where were you based at this time? Uh, well, I was in Northern Florida in Gainesville okay. studying at the University of Florida. And um, I had to make a choice. And at the time, my boyfriend of seven years had proposed and we were going to get married. Well, no, I just thought, oh my goodness, all these things are going to happen and I can see my life going in this path. And then this huge asteroid landed in my life that just upended everything. And so I had a choice to, uh, I don't know, go, you know, go downhill and, and feel sorry for myself or take action. And I've, and I'm a take action kind of person. So I took my brother, my sister took my mom to California to her sister's house. And I took my brother to Chile where my grandparents are. And I said, let's go to Chile. My Spanish was really bad by this point. Cause I've been raised in the States and my language was more like at home Spanish kind of thing. Pass me the salt, mom. When's dinner? Um, and I arrived to Chile with no, nothing, just to my grandparents' house, knowing I needed to make money to sort of support my brother and my family and bring my mom over. So was this when you were around about 18, 19 then? No, by this point I was 21. Okay, because just when I was doing my research, I saw one of like the your famous stories are a real key point for mm -hmm. you was I think when you were 19, you joined a company and mm -hmm. you got told you'd have to fight for your place? Uh, no, that was that was in, uh, well, I had been working. I've been working for a long time. I've been working since I was 14. Right. I got my first job out at, when I was in high, not even high school, junior high school, in the summer. My parents were very much uh, believers that uh, you need to work. I mean, they were, they were very comfortable. We came from a pretty com financially comfortable biz uh, com uh, family. But my my dad was just sick of me asking for money, so he's like, "Sorry, you've you've got to make your own money." So at age fourteen, I got a job selling advertising uh, over the phone, and over a couple of weeks, I was better than everybody else. No. And the guy, it was my mom knew them, and so they were like a business up, uh, across the off, across the hallway from my mom's business. 
And the guy said to her, my mom, can we keep her? She's so amazing. She sells so much. Can we keep her? My mom's like, she's 14. She's going in. She's got to go to school. So every summer I had a job. And every job I've had to fight my place for my place. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Every job I've had to. And then when I was around this time at 21, I was working at a company doing marketing, sales, putting events together as an assistant. And the owner of the company, when I said to him, I'm leaving. I got to go. I got to go to Chile. He said, I'll pay you triple. I'll pay you whatever it is. Stay here in the United States. I'll take care of you because you're amazing. You're going so far. He said, you're going to go far. You're going to make a mistake leaving and throwing it all away. And I remember at age 20, 21, however old I was, I looked at him and I said, family comes first. And, you know, and I was being offered tons of money and a potential opportunity uh, to grow in a business. This guy was a millionaire. And I was like, I'm sorry, family comes first. And I was jumping into the unknown and I jumped into the unknown. And then I landed in some job in the winery. And this uh, was in Chile. This was in Chile. And a funny story, I got this job through my granddad. Back, you know, in Chile, I mean, you're talking about in the uh, year, gosh, the 90s, right? So it must have been 96 or something like that. And my granddad, and it wasn't even in the capital, it was like in the South, very regional, very colonialized, you know, co colonial type of environment. What I mean by that is that it's all about the families that you know. So my granddad got me a job, walked into the winery, went up to the owner and said, we've known each other since we were kids, hire my granddaughter. And that's how I got my job. And, uh, and I worked my way up with people that didn't believe that I had any talent at all. Uh, because I didn't have a degree hmm. and they would make me make tea or make coffee and they would belittle me. The boss in front of the, my boss was uh, not that guy, another guy that was the director of exports. He was patronizing. He was uh, insulting. And I just, it was like water off a duck's back. I thought I have to deal with this crap. I just need to get on with it and demonstrate my abilities. And I did. And I demonstrated my abilities and kept getting promoted and kept getting promoted until... I got to what I consider to be perhaps the best mm, sales job I did ever. My best sales effort that I ever did was not a deal that I closed for money. It was a deal that I closed for myself. Um, I was drive. I was <laughs> so I was in the winery industry, in the wine industry, and I was in this southern uh, province, and this huge celebrity, major name in the uh, wine industry, like huge celebrity arrives and I'm supposed to be his driver and translator. He was coming with his CEO to find a joint vent, to create a joint venture with a specific winery or set of wineries. And he was just shopping the area, looking around and I was to be his interpreter. So all I did for about a week was just interpret. And because I speak a bit of French, so I was interpreting French, Spanish, English, nice, yeah. and I had done the research. So I had read all the technical stuff and done everything. And this guy was really impressed with me. And as I'm driving him back, he's still not made his decision. As I'm driving him back to the airport, which is uh, to his hotel in the capital in Santiago, three-hour drive, just me, him, and the CEO. And in those three hours, I convinced him and pitched him that I was the person that he should put in charge of his joint venture over like $2 million. I was like 23. And I said, I'm the right person for the job. And he's like, why? And I said, because what you need, and this is something I've always been able to do, which is to spot a need and to find a way to fill it and to solve a problem. I'm a problem solver. So I said, because you need someone who can bridge the gap between the Chilean culture and how things are done in Chile and the American culture, how sure. things are done in America. And I'm that person. 
And so, I mean, I make it sound easy, but there were three hours of my explaining why I would be the best person for the job. He made me general manager. We, uh, I remember arriving to the hotel and he said, all right, well, you might as well park up and uh, come have dinner with me and uh, the CEO. And I said, what? why? And he said, well, because my general manager, my new general manager needs to have dinner with us to celebrate. And he offered me a job and I took charge of a joint venture that was amazing. And it was the best teacher in my life. You know why? Because this guy saw a young kid with a lot of talent, without an education, without a degree, and thought, I'm going to invest in that person. So what he did was something spectacular. He gave me the job. He trusted me. And then he put a series of consultants around me to teach me the, the ropes. Mm -hmm. So I had one of the ex-presidents of a mo major Fortune 500 who was his friend, be my business consultant. I had the top law firm, the top accounting firm, the top financial firm, all around me, the best winemaker, who I had weekly calls with to train me. And so I got on-the-job training over two years with some of the bi biggest and brightest minds while doing the job. So although I didn't have a university education, I was three months, four months away from graduating or something, I got a real hands-on education from some of the biggest names and experts in Latin America uh, on business, on wine, on marketing, on sales, on procurement, supply chain, manufacturing, harvesting, mm. you name it. I became an expert over two years, two, three years of doing that. Well, Samir, I guess I want to take a couple of steps back just because I'm really fascinated by the decision you made at 21-22. You were offered triple your salary and you said family comes first. Why did you have to go back to Chile or why did you, I, I understand like a lot happened, like you said, with your parents, but how was that decision made? You're, you're obviously not money-driven, but I'm curious. Oh, I was very much money-driven. Uh, so what was the opportunity in Chile? Because obviously it worked out very it, well. It, but it, well, yeah, it did work out well. I'm I think the thought process. Then. The thought process there was that my family was broken. My mother practically had a nervous breakdown. My 12-year-old brother was left without a parent because my dad left to go be with his new wife. Uh, my mother left to have her nervous breakdown with my sister, and I had a 12-year-old kid around to take care of, and I was 22. Why couldn't you take care of him in the States, though? Because I'd have to work full-time, and my brother would do what? You know, I wasn't going to be a 22-year-old single mom, right? so I needed help, family help, and, and, the and then that's where the grandparents came in. I thought, I need to work full-time and make sure he goes to really good education, gets a really good education, gets family support, gets people around him, aunts, uncles, people that can help him uh, not notice the shit show that's going around. That's happening in his life. So how did you feel doing that? Because it was such a big leap. You'd obviously lived a life of adventures and moving mm -hmm. around. So was it just another move or? Was it was the way that I saw it, it was a necessity. Mm. The way that I saw it, it was one of those things that it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my parents. It was about my brother. So to me, it was about this 12-year-old kid that had no idea what was going on and had only one person to look up to. And that was me. And what better opportunity could I give him? Was it in the States where I'd be... I don't know, the equivalent of a single mom working, mm -hmm. leaving a kid to sort of fend for himself or go back to where my family was, regroup, circle the wagons and start there. So it wasn't about me. It was, uh, it was not, at that point, my interests, my self-preservation was took a back seat to taking care of my brother. I see that the right thing for other people yeah. and that worked out whether you call it karma or whatever, because that moved you down the path where you got this amazing education on the yeah. job. 
Yeah. Uh, I think you just make your opportunities, man. That's the way that I see it. It's not about, uh, you know, I could have gone there and been resentful and hated life and hated my dad or hated my mom or hated the fact that I was at 22 given this responsibility. And then, you know, hating other people and being resentful is just a pill of poison you take to, for yourself. It doesn't hurt anybody else. It hurts you. And so I realized that that's not who I am. I am the person that creates opportunities. So I looked at it as another adventure. I mean, it's such a great mindset to have. Sometimes it takes people years to, you know, maybe become less blaming outside mm -hmm. influences. Maybe not so much in America because mm. it's quite a more positive. Mm. We can go, we can do this. Do you mm. think that yeah, yeah, played yeah, a part? Yeah, definitely. It, it was one of those, we can do this. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm American by education. But I also think not everyone in America is like that. You sure. know, it's, it's just a question of the way that I've always been. I am not, you know... Uh, I've had, a, I've had a lot of privilege, so I want to start from the basis that I have lived a good life of privilege. I've got a great, had a great education, had wonderful supporting parents, um, all of those things. So I looked at life, and that was interesting, and that's, that moment shaped my life forever. If I had continued on that path, I would have been a kid that had had everything handed to them since the day they were born with tremendous privilege. And what would have happened? I don't know. I would have uh, ended up gotten, getting married to my boyfriend who was wonderful, had lots of money. Yeah, great. But no failure in my life. No, you know, nothing to, to demonstrate the reality of life. And so to me, I'm extremely grateful for that failure because it allowed me to decide at that moment that failure was not going to shake me. Failure was not going to define me. That failure happens. It's what you do with that failure that makes you the person that you are. Yeah, it's almost like the path of least resistance yeah. would have left you feeling totally unfulfilled. Completely. And now you've had such an adventure. So we get back to, you had all this on the job experience, you had your three hour pitch and yeah. you got given got that job. opportunity. Awesome. Yeah. So you were working in Chile. the wine industry there. Yeah, I was working in the wine industry. No, the only bad thing that came out of that job is that I am unfortunately a wine snob. <laughs> uh, I can't drink crap wine. Um, that's the only thing. But I learned a lot, and then they pulled out of Chile and offered me the chance to go back to the United States, and I thought, nope, I don't want to go back to the States. Uh, I knew that Chile wasn't in my um, in my future because mm. you're talking about the year, at this point, 2000, give or take, uh, and it was still pretty much a misogynistic society with, uh, I was never going to advance. I knew that I, as at best, I would get to some managerial role, and that was it. And I'd have to be married off. I also came from a, you know, good family as it is over there, and so that's what all the girls dreamt of is just marrying well. And that's what my cousins did. That's what my aunts did, and and that's what you did. And I didn't want to do that. So I thought, where am I going to go? And I always looked for opportunities and remembered that I'm half Italian. And I asked my grandfather, how about you get your Italian passport? Because if you get it, then I can get it. And so I convinced him to do that. He did it. And I got my Italian passport, which allowed me to work in the EU. And I went to Germany and because my sister was living there with her new husband. Okay. My younger sister by this point. So she's living in Germany. I arrive in Germany just with, I think I had $500 or something like that. I hitched a ride on an airplane through my dad. So I called my dad. By this point, we were back talking and happily reunited because I realized my dad was a human being, not, you mm -hmm. know, and he could make mistakes. Again, a healthy way of looking at things. And so I asked my dad, I said, can you get me to Europe? And he's like, well, let me see what I can do. And I said, I'll hitch a ride on anything. And there was a plane that was going back from, 
I don't know, without going into too much detail, but uh, airplanes here in Europe get leased to airlines in the United States or Latin America during the off-peak. So when it's winter here, they go to summer there, and then they fill them to go to the Caribbean or something. Makes sense. So there was a a plane from Germany leaving Chile, going back to uh, Germany. And so I hitched a ride on that plane with just the pilots, like a big plane, like a 737 or something, with the pilots and the stewardesses, and that's it, and me. And it was an empty plane. All we did was drink champagne all the way to Germany, landed in Germany. And then I tried, I pitched my way to getting a job teaching English. I say that because no one would hire me because I don't have a degree. So it was another thing. No. So the years in the wine industry didn't work in your favor in any way? Well, I, I, no. No, because on paper I was, yeah, great, a general manager of a winery uh, or a wine venture. But... I, that's it. I didn't have a degree. You, you don't know what that was like in the year 1996 or the year 2000. No degree, no door, you know, no door. Yeah, Pl- Plain and simple. You were just anyone without a degree. The CV went in the trash. I suppose it's more common practice now. Like people know the moment you've got your first job, nope. you're in it for two or three years. Yep. Degree doesn't matter nope. in the industry. But nope. back then, nope. had to be on paper. Nope. Literally without the degree, your CV went in the trash. Right. Um, so I uh, knocked on doors to try to teach English, thinking I can teach English. And they said, nope, no degree. Eventually, instead of giving up, I went to another business that I realized was teaching to business people. So in the area I was living in Heidelberg, there were a lot of manufacturing plants and I had worked in the food manufacturing sector. So I went to the owner. I got a, a, a meeting with him and I said, you've got a problem. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm the most successful you know, English school here. And I said, English Academy for Adults. And I said, yeah, well, you're teaching regular English. What about business English? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, do you teach your people shareholder value, return on investment, uh, you know, return on capital, things like that? Well, no. I said, well, do you teach them manufacturing terms? Like, for example, I don't know, things about robotics. Uh, uh, I said, well, I can do that. And I got myself a job teaching English nice. uh, to people in the supply chain manufacturing space, which is where I had been working. And I had a grand time, six months doing that, getting tours of the BMW plant, getting tours of all the major plants there, teaching their senior executives. But also, again, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Great so, networking, though, if you're getting yeah, to speak great. to these high-level executives. Yeah, Did great. that play a part in your future? or Nope. No, I thought, okay. I thought. well, yeah, I'm teach, I'm their English teacher. Do I want to be an English teacher? No disrespect to English teachers. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. Well, I just wondered if it gave you an opportunity to kind of flash your knowledge, because if you're talking and educating them these things, yeah, I but, think one of them would have a light bulb being like, oh, have they... Yeah, but I didn't have a degree. So again, it was, if you would try to get a job, the first thing would be like, well, what did you study? Did you study engineering? Did you study business? Yeah, but I don't have a degree. So black or white. It was black or white. It was 100% that. So irrespective of my knowledge, my experience, my eloquence, my attitude, uh, my go-getting attitude or whatever, problem solving, didn't matter. Yeah. No degree. See you later. Crazy. So I applied for a job online back in the early days of online uh, recruitment. And I got a job offer. No, I lie. I got an interview in London in publishing. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go to London. I arrived here in 2001. I had a thousand pounds to my name. A friend of my brother-in-law let me stay in a room in Peckham. I don't know if you know Peckham. Pretty, It was dodgy <laughs> back in 2001, I'll tell you that much. And um, and I got this interview for this job. They lowballed me at the interview and said, we'll pay you whatever, peanuts. And I needed it. I have a thousand pounds to my name. That's all I owned. Yeah. 
and all I had, and I walked out of the interview. I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I just walked out and I desperately needed that job. And I said, no, bye. And I just walked out the door. Later, I found out that no one had ever rejected them because it was a pretty prestigious publishing business and it was to do sales. And I said, no. And within five minutes, they called me back and offered me a lot more money. Nice. So I took that job and it was selling advertising in magazines. Which you'd done before. Which I'd done before. But this was a business with like 500 people or 1,000 people, 99% men. And I was the only woman pretty much or one of the only women in 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 this pretty very male-dominated environment of sales in the early – in 2001 in London. Pretty hardcore. Well, so how did it compare to the experience in Chile? Because you'd said the culture there was quite – the ladies go off and get married or look for a good marriage. So you'd experienced some level of misogyny. I'm oh, guessing. huge. And so what, how did that compare in London to the Chile culture? Uh, the Chile culture was more sort of older, well-to-do family people saying, you know, oh, you should get married and, you know, your husband will take care of you. That sort of antiquated mentality. Whereas the London was the lad sort of, you know, hardcore sales, laddish behavior. It was It was open sexism, open sexual aggression, open misogyny. It was a world full of drugs and rock and roll and just, it was crazy. An English wolf of Wall Street. An English, uh, yeah, yeah, it's not an exaggeration. It was an English wolf of Wall Street, 100%. So again, I'm sure everyone has different experiences and I'm, I don't want to make it so binary as these two options. But I'm guessing for ladies at the time, it went either you go all in and you become like them to try and fit in or you have to try and like carve your own path and identity. Strike me as the sort of personality that would choose the latter. Yeah, I, I carved my own path. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't comfortable being like those guys. I made friends with them. I, you know, I had a good time in the sense that I, I they were affable, like I, but I knew that I was going to be the top salesperson. I knew. I knew that I was going to be the top salesperson in that business. Why? Because I knew that I was going to work harder than they would. And so I have a growth mindset. To me, it's all about, you know, yes, I have natural talent, but at the same time, I put a hell of a lot of work into it. So where my male colleagues were going to the pub after work and on weekends, I don't know, playing golf or hanging out with their friends, I was going to the library and I was writing down where I had failed or succeeded that week, what I hadn't said, what I should have said, what the top salesperson did. I studied it. I read every single book that I could on the subject of, you know, manufacturing, supply chain, finance, which is where I was. My little bedsit in Peckham was filled with financial books, and, and I studied and I highlighted. And, and so I knew that this was my time to work harder than everybody. So I was the first one in the office, the last one out of the office. Uh, and uh, I, list, I immediately went like a heat-seeking missile. Who is the number one salesperson here? Sat next to them, watched them, took notes of everything they did, and then adapted it to me and thought, how can I do that? Right. Well, were they okay with that? Because Oh, it's very competitive. Yeah, well, so I was going to say from a social dynamic yeah. Yeah, kind yeah. of way like this you know, you come in, you're like, I'm going to beat the boys club. Yeah. And then you start beating them and become yeah. the best salesperson. I'm amazed that the top salesperson let you sit next well, to initially, them to kind of like take their... Initially, role. they didn't know. I didn't say, hey, I want to beat you. Yeah. I was yeah. like, well, I want to learn from you and I want to understand how, how to do this. And, um, and I did and I watched them and I got a seat, not sitting on top of the guy, but I was like, you know, he's across, across from me and I would just watch and see what he did. And, and then I would apply my own 
thinking and my own logic and what yeah. I had learned. And slowly but surely, I started to become the top salesperson in the business. So what happened there when that shift started happening? Was there... Well, the incredulity, people were like, what the hell? Who is this woman? Yeah. Who is this person here? People would stop to list the whole floor at one point would stop to just to listen to how I would sell and what I would say. The whole floor, all of these guys would just sit there and watch in awe, not understanding that I was applying empathy, business knowledge, uh, a number of different types of characteristics, charm, uh, and uh, was able to sell quite well and quite quickly. Well, that's quite nice to hear because I'd almost have thought like the dynamic would make some enemies and maybe it did. But did. the fact that they wanted to like listen and yeah. learn. Yeah, at first they rubbished me. They're like, yeah, whatever. She's full of crap. You know, it's it's luck. It's luck. It's luck. I got a lot of that. I got a lot of teasing. I got a lot of, you know, as, as a lot of aggression. Mm. Uh, of course I did. Absolutely. But I didn't let it bother me. I was like, yeah, whatever. Uh, basically what I would do very funnily, anytime anybody would bother me, um, I would just look at them and just look behind them, which is where our boards were, where sales figures look behind them. Then I'd look at my board and I'd go, you know, whatever, man. You can talk to me when you're close to my numbers. Nice, yeah. You know, yeah, and that was it. When you hit my numbers, you can talk to me. Didn't hurt the fact that I'm 5'10 and also an ex-basketball player and I can sort of defend myself, so. Yeah. How long did it take you to become top salesperson? I would say probably about six months. Good amount. Yeah. Nice Probably about six, six months, yeah. Sneak up on them. So you got to top salesperson there, and as somebody who likes a challenge, I'd imagine being top salesperson only fulfilled you for so long till you're like, what's next? Yeah. Then I wanted to become a manager, and my sales director wouldn't promote me. I remember walking into a, well, we were at an event once, and the directors were all sitting around the table, men, all men, talking about me saying, how, how many people do we need to hire to find a Maria Villablanca? And how many people do we need to see? And they took, they would, they did, um, they brought in a special company to do a psychological assessment, an assessment on my sales, to try to replicate me. And replicate you in general, so they got more of you across yeah. the business, or to yeah, replace yeah. you with a guy? Okay. No, 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 okay. to, to, to get more of me. So they started hiring, I mean, this is in their infinite wisdom, we must hire American women, that's it. And so all of a sudden, like five American women showed up and, and they were like, yeah, that's the secret. We're going to hire American women. And I was like, oh my God, are these guys this dumb? Nothing like generalization. You know, exactly. And I thought, no, I am me because I am me, because of the many things that have shaped me my entire life, mm. whether it's being born to it in a dictatorship, leaving college, doing the thing. It's it's like a like a rock, right, in a river. It's it's the water sort of like shapes it over time. That's me. I'm me because of all of those bumps, all of those rides that I've been on. Well, because, yeah, because you've obviously got such thick skin and always had this positive mental attitude. At any point, did the experiences of like, you know, these guys in various workplaces and that experience grind you down? Yeah, of course it did. Do hmm. you know, I've, yeah, I put on a brave face, but it was hard. It was hard. I mean, the sexist jokes, the uh, inappropriate touching, the, you know, being slapped in the ass, the, you know, those things. Of course it does. There are moments where you think, is it, what the hell am I doing here? Should I just have an easy life? But then I thought, why am I going to let them win? They're threatened by me. Why not just beat them at their own game? And eventually then I just became one of the guys, although I wasn't necessarily one of the guys. I wasn't partaking in the same types of activities, mm. but I earned the respect of a lot of people. And so uh, 
Then I wanted more seniority and I got poached by another company to do that. And I became a sales manager, the top sales manager in my business uh, very quickly. Then I kept, my team kept growing and then they were like, well, we need you to do what you do, this magic, with other people. And so I became one of the youngest sales directors in a long time and uh, in my company, certainly. And then from there, it was just more people, more people to train, more people to, uh, you know, and I, eventually I got to the point where I was managing director. Um, I had like three, 400 people under me. I was traveling the world. I was uh, managing people in Singapore, managing people in, you know, uh, Canada, managing people in the UK, et cetera. And then I went for the ultimate. I want to be a shareholder of this company. And the answer was no, absolutely not. And even though I was essential, I knew, and I, I remember at one point I had someone from the competition call me and say, we'll offer you to come because we know that if you leave your whole sales infrastructure, that whole sales infrastructure leaves with you. Crumble. Because they were, they were so devoted to me. What was their reason for saying no giving you equity? Was it they just Be didn't want to part with it? They didn't or? want to part with it right. because they knew they wanted to sell the company and they didn't want to part with it. So uh, in the end, I got to the, to the point where I was so essential. I remember at one point my boss said to me, please don't ever get pregnant. And he said to me, because I was married at the time, and he said to my husband, you better not ever get her pregnant because we need her. My boss would say to me, your being out of the office costs me at least 50,000 pounds a day. So I never took vacations. I never did anything. I was, I, I, I got, I took two days off to get married. And, and that's just how I was. I was relentless. I was 18 hours, days. I was an animal, just constantly working. Well, I'm absolutely amazed at the, it's not even arrogance, it's shooting themselves in the foot. Why risk saying no when you wanted equity? If that's the case, if it's 50,000 a day, the because by this point, it must be much higher. Much higher, but it's, I think they realized, because I'd been there for many years, that I also was making a ton of money. So they thought, she's she's not going to leave. She's never going to leave. And well, so eventually... competition to just come in and offer you the same or more with equity. And I, absolutely. But th they were just so self-assured. So then what happened is one day, I then went to the owner and I said you know what? I'm out. That's it. I didn't have another job. I just said, I'm out. I can't do this. If you want me to do, to fix this business, because by that point I was living in Canada and they wanted me to come back to the UK, the headquarters, I said, there's only one way I'm going to do it. And that is if I sit equally with you guys on the board. I said, you guys are so well removed from reality. You guys sit up in your ivory tower and you dictate rules and you have no idea what's happening on the ground. I'm the one that's running this business. And if you don't remunerate me and give me the equity and the seat on that table, then this whole thing will crumble without me. And so that's it. They did it. And I got a seat on the table. You've always been good at setting your boundaries and saying yeah. no things that aren't right and yeah. telling people what you need. Yes. I know you have moved into coaching a little bit, haven't you? You start yeah, I helping mentor people, people realize their worth. Yeah, yeah. I mentor people. I, you know, talk to people. I created the first women in business at our business. Um, and I have coached other women on how to do this. I speak at events. Uh, just recently, I was at an event for Women's International's Day, International Day talking about women in business. And uh, there were a bunch of younger women who had no idea some of the things that we'd gone through to pave the way for the way that they uh, they can run the work in business today. So I remember saying I never had a mentor, never had a female mentor, because there were no female mentors. There was no one I could look up to and say, that's who I want to be. Yeah. Uh, so I had to carve my own way. And if I, therefore, I think it's my duty and my responsibility to sort of help others uh, 
carve their way too and to help them avoid the kind of bumps along the road that I had to deal with. Well, do you find a lot of the time educating them is in the know your worth, know your boundaries, say what you need? Because I think that's one of the key things, right? A lot of guys are vocal and business, well, like, I want this, I need this. One of the stories that I told, which is a true story, I was guilty of bias. When I was sales director, I promoted only men. And I, I didn't realize it. I just realized all of a sudden one day that all my managers were men. And I remember thinking, well, what? how did this happen? How did I do this when there are very capable women that should be managers? And then I remembered thinking, well, this is the problem. And I'm generalizing. And I always say this. I am generalizing. Women tend to be very bad self-promoters. Mm -hmm. Women, we always label under the misapprehension that men, our bosses, will recognize our work because it's good work. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas men will do, and again, I'm generalizing, will do... I don't know, the minimal effort and go, did you see that? Did you see? I just did that. I did that. Do you see that? That's right. I did that. And so what was happening to me is that the men would arrive in my office and say, Maria, did you see that big deal? I just did that deal. Maria, did you see this? And they were constantly in my face. So when I went home and thinking, oh, I've got a, I've got a new managerial position opening up, um, who should I give it to? Oh, yeah, that's right. So-and-so was in my office. He is a really confident guy. Yeah, he's a good leader. And I'd promote the men. And I'd pass by all the women like in the back of the office, because they never approached me. They never said, hey, did you see that? I did that. Whereas I did that. I'm that person. So I I normally did say that to my bosses regularly. Did you see that? Yeah, I did yeah. that. I did that. Do you think there was an intimidation factor with, you know, as, because obviously, like you said, you're quite a strong personality. So yes. Five foot ten, like if you were able to. So I am intimidating. I get that. That comes from it being, I got had that in high school. You know, I was an intimidating, I'm a leader. And so I did that personality test. I got the same personality thing as like, I don't know, Margaret Thatcher and right. all these people. I've, I am generally like that. So I'm not, a pro, I'm not your fuzzy, warm, approachable person. Um, and that puts people off sometimes. As a matter of fact, even today doing a photo shoot, you know, the guys asked me to do a serious face and they were like, damn, that was scary. So uh, I have that. I get that. Um, no, I, it comes down to, I think, women in general don't advertise their own uh, successes. Mm. And so in general, they, uh, and that's what I said in the meeting I had, is that you need to be your best self-promoters. You need to be there and reminding people that you've solved problems, that you've done this, um, so long as you put in the hard work. Now that doesn't guarantee success. Uh, it doesn't at all. There's a number of things that need to happen, but not doing it is certainly gonna guarantee mm. failure. So when you had that revelation, that you had your own internal biases. What did you start doing differently for your own employees? Two things. First, I started the women in business uh, section and started to train and motivate all the women in my business to how to do that. Uh, that's number one. Number two is that I would bring the women in and say, right, tell me what you've done recently. Tell me, tell me about what you did. Tell me something good you did. Why that helped the business. And so I would have to, at some point, drag it out of them. Yeah. And then I'd realize, wow, okay, that was really good. And then take some chances. You know what? I'm going to promote you and I'm going to give you this shot. And then took them under my wing and helped them achieve as much as they could. When, how long ago did you realize this? Ooh, this was, must have been about uh, 15 years ago. So you've been ago. on the journey of educating and yeah. coaching in the last 15 years. Yeah. The, like one of the big dialogues that's going on in the world is obviously, you know, like equality in the workplace and stuff. You actually, I read your article from International Women's Day and I loved the way you put it that it's not about creating a sisterhood mm -hmm. to counter up against the decades of brotherhood. It's about trying to bring everyone together. Mm -hmm. How are you finding that fight? 
Well, I think there are a lot of male allies, and we can't forget the male allies in the room, and that, that is an important thing. And there are a lot of men that do understand that we need to diversify our teams, not for the sake of some sort of quota, mm-hmm. but for the sake of actually trying to weather this volatility we have in business today. You know, the, we, are, we are living an era of quite a lot of significant change since the pandemic. It's been changing beforehand. And I think that um, you need to have disruptors and critical thinkers and people around the table that might have a different opinion to you. So it's, it's a survival thing, in my opinion. Mm. It's, it's, so, it's not so much of, oh, okay, I've got three women, yay. It's about, are these the right critical thinkers around me to help me weather this, this uncertainty? So you're, you're obviously, are you educating business owners and business leaders as well about yeah. how they can be more intelligently yes. diverse? Challenging their norms, you know, and, and, and I'm challenging. I'm, what I do with my business today is I like to spark dialogue around these topics. That's what my podcast is about, about transforming your business from analog to digital, from antiquated business models to new business models. It's about transformation because I firmly believe that the world is in a very different place than it was 10, 20 years ago. And either you adapt to this new environment or you will die out like the dinosaurs. So when they invite you in or you approach them, what are two, three big questions you ask them to get them thinking where very often they're like, oh, I've never thought about things that way. Oh, that's such a good point. What's like, where do you find across the board they're I think all missing thinking? I think, first of all, I'm not a coach by profession. You know, I'm, I'm not doing that every day. To me, I am a connector of people, a someone who sparks dialogue, someone who interviews other people. I create events. I create content. I'm a content creator. To me, it's about asking the kinds of questions from the prism of both a CEO, an entrepreneur, and a woman. Uh, the questions that are go hand in hand. Is this the right kind of thing that's going to create value for my business, for my shareholders, for my clients? And so with that in mind, also being a, a woman of color, a woman, a Latin American woman, a woman, you know, I've had to fight my way through for many years. And, and people, perhaps young people, don't understand what it was like to have your doors shut before you could even apply to a job because mm-hmm. you didn't have a degree, because your name was Maria Villablanca. Uh, it was a tough environment. So to me, it's about surrounding yourself with people that ask the right questions that can help you, no matter what they look like. So how do you, how do you spend your days now then? What's most I, of your time invested in? My dogs. No, apart nice, from that, uh, apart from that, it is in talking to world, com- you know, company leaders from, from the world. So I will have conversations, whether it's recording my podcasts with, Um, huge CXO, you know, chief operating officers, chief uh, sustainability officers from Fortune 500 companies. It'll be talking to my team, discussing content ideas uh, for supply chain TV, for uh, my newsletter, for the newsletter of the company. It'll be managing the team. So I am CEO, CFO, COO, you name it. It's a small business. So you all have to muck in. It's about training, developing the team as well, educating them. It's about, uh, so I spend my day mostly juggling all of that. And then here's an important thing. I am also a woman with family dependence and I have to take care of family. I've got to juggle a lot of things, Mm -hmm. which is something that we don't speak a lot about as a woman CXO. 
You know, I am a woman who juggles between having to take a Zoom meeting and having to give my dad his cancer medication. He's 87. He's recently been diagnosed with cancer. Having to take the dogs out, having to go grocery shopping, having to speak with someone from MIT. This is how I spend my day juggling those things. So how do you find it juggling those things? If, uh, it's like you said, it's a problem out there that people don't talk about. For anyone who's listening and in the same boat, but maybe doesn't know how to manage it, what would you say is your process for helping you find some balance? I think it's it would be remiss of me, and I think it is remiss of anybody that comes on to any show and says it's easy, because that's bullshit. It isn't easy. There are days where I am like pulling my hair out and thinking, oh my God, how the hell am I going to do this? But one thing I did learn because I had a mini stroke, two mini strokes a couple of years ago, is I am not going to kill myself for anything or anyone. So as a result, when I feel overwhelmed, I step away. I push back and I think, you know what? No, I am not going to go and take this meeting because I have to go get out and walk the dogs in nature and reabsorb things. So the reality is, how do I do it? One step at a time. And some days it's hard. Some days it's harder. Um, some days it's a struggle, but you ask for help. I delegate. I talk to my team. Hey, can you get me out of this meeting? Hey, can you make my apologies, but I'm not going to make that meeting? Or this meeting should be an email. Can you just send me an email instead? So you realize that you have to have balance. If not, you will go insane and you can't do it all. Well, so how do you find it slowing down, Maria? Because obviously you are quite, you love being actively involved in things and supporting people, working on things. Like at what point did you find you had to slow down? Well, the mini stroke was a pretty big... Yes, I was thinking <laughs> that. That's why, that's why I took the pause. There. I was yeah. like, I think I know that. That was a pretty this. big, yeah. yeah. So but was that kind of the kick up? That, that was it. Like, that, that was it. it. Beforehand, I was working 18-hour days. I had a mini stroke, right? One night on my own. Stress base? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Uh, it wasn't a full-on stroke. It was a mini stroke in the sense that it was on, it's on, you know, it was visible on my CT scan, et cetera, but it wasn't a full on you know, blood thing that, you know, broke. But um, I went to work the next day. I had it at night, took some paracetamol and thought, well, I started to talk myself out of it. No, it wasn't a stroke. It was right, a, it was a headache. It must've been my sinuses. And uh, I went to work the next day and did a board meeting. And then I, and I push through and I push through. Mm -hmm. Like I always do. I push through. I push through. That's, that's me all over. Give me a crisis. I will push through. Uh, I'm like the beast of burden, the ox that just carries on all the weight for everybody and pushes through. I don't understand failure. Well, that's why I guess I asked the question, how do you find slowing down? And I had to learn. I had to learn. Just, I had to unlearn perhaps, unlearn things. Uh, so I then went home after the board meeting, had a second mini stroke and I landed in the hospital. And when you're faced with a doctor that says, you know, we might have to have brain surgery, you might have to have brain surgery in the next hour, uh, because of this, because of the swelling in your brain, you just, reality hits you in the face twice, mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, I had to learn, like you learn another discipline, like playing the guitar. I had to learn about taking time for myself. I had to learn to say no. I had to learn to say, you know what? It's five o'clock. I am going to turn everything off and I'm going to go watch a movie and not feel guilty about it. And uh, do you think you've reached that point or is it still something you're trying it's to learn? It's something I struggle with a lot. I, it's a lot less. You know, sometimes I think uh, 
I feel apologetic when I have to go, I say, you know what, I'm going to go to the supermarket now because it's the only time in my calendar that I can go to the supermarket. Uh, and then I feel guilty and I apologize to my, biz my business partner or my teams. Like, I'm sorry, I had to go do this. And then I realized, well, no, that's, that's just how it is. And I don't answer emails on the weekend. I don't answer business calls on the weekend. I am, I am generally sort of disciplined, just like you would be disciplined about anything. You have to have that discipline. Yeah, well, that's good. So what's, what's the big plans now? What's the future looking like for you? World domination. Yeah, good. Uh, it's uh, doing what I love, doing more of it. Um, it's expanding, growing, going out there to meet more people, more interesting people, being a content creator, uh, getting myself outside of my comfort zone, um, with like today doing photo shoots that are so weird for me, uh, posting selfies. I mean, come on, that's so not me and not my generation, but doing all those things, challenging myself. So it's like you said, it's not, and we spoke about it just before we got started. Content creation is such a huge thing now and everyone expects it from Gen Z's and millennials, but like for yes. Gen X and above, you know, it's, some people are still a bit like, especially outside of America. It's and like, oh, and, this is and in business to business, this isn't something like, course, I'm, I'm, in, yeah. I'm not doing it for like the consumer, you know, like I'm, I'm doing it from business leader to business leader. Yeah, I still get a bit of looks like, what, you do a podcast? Uh, absolutely. But I think that I'd, you know, I'd like to think that I'm a bit ahead of my, my, my time, I guess, for, for my generation. I saw that this is something that needs to happen for business to business. And and I want to be there, want to be a pioneer in this. I'm already 175 episodes into my podcast. I've been doing it a while. So what's next? More content creation, better content creation, interesting topics, getting interesting people involved, you know? What advice would you give to other B2B businesses for who want to start creating content but think, oh, what if I put off potential customers, clients, whatever? What's What pushes you through and... I think the first thing I would say, looking at it from the lens of a CEO, there is, a, I can actually demonstrate significant value to my business from a commercial perspective from creating content. Mm -hmm. And that's something a CEO, you know, why would I do anything? I'm not going to do anything unless it, you know, there's passion project stuff. Ooh, I'd love to do this because it's a passion of mine. But I've actually seen commercial revenue come in through the work that I do creating content. Yeah. So that's enough motivation. If there's anyone listening who's in B2B, that is it. Understand that you can connect the dots between content creation, sparking dialogue, debate, growing brand, and commerciality. Nice. And just one last question, Maria. With such a full life, full of adventures and stuff, it's probably hard to narrow it down to one. But like, what would you say has been the biggest lesson? You've failure. Had? failure. Failure. Failure, failure, and failure. If I had not failed, I would have been on a path of privilege, eco chambers, and... Uh, I would have thrown a tantrum any time something happened. Whereas now, for me, failure is an opportunity for growth. So really for anyone who, because failure never feels good and everyone quite often hears, you know, if you fail, fail fast, move on. What is like a mental almost structure you could tell people? Because people hear all the time, you know, if you fail, it's fine, move on. But how do you, what would you say to people to really just push past it? Failure is like death in some ways. You have to go through stages. You have to grieve. You have to be sad. You have to be angry. You have to have regret. You have to do all of those things. So sit in it for a little bit. And I have sat in my failure and and maybe not dwelled in it, but don't live in it. Don't live in your failure. Understand that failure is okay. Understand that failure is something to learn from and then look for the opportunity in failure. And there is always one. There's always an opportunity in failure. 
I love it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And there you have it. What an amazing guest Maria was. Just when you sit down with somebody and they talk about having that attitude of solving problems, because we all hear that. If you want to create a business, you need to figure out how to solve problems. But her ability to spot opportunities, she told you herself, it just led to her moving quickly up the ladder in companies across the globe. Now, for me, something I found quite interesting was her experience with misogyny. Being a guy, it's not something I've really dealt with. So whenever I sit down with a female guest, it's, it's not funny but how much it just comes up. But what made it even more interesting in the sit down with Maria was the fact she got her own biases and had to go through her own journey to figure out how to avoid that and actually help female employees know how to promote themselves. And she spends a lot of time doing that now, which is great when she spotted this behavior in herself. She spotted another problem and she's now going out her way to solve that. Once again, I'll just ask if you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, leave a rating. It would be great to see how people are enjoying and experiencing the podcast. And if you didn't already know, we actually have a YouTube channel as well. So if you look up the Story Club podcast, you'll find episodes there. So if you enjoy watching things, I highly recommend it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching and thank you for your time. And I'll catch you again next week with a brand new episode.